All right. So uh, we are talking about Flying Blind. Adam, you were asking me who gave this, this book to me. Um, well, in my... part, I was asking this because, I mean, as you mentioned, your mother, but it, it, it is it is so like on the screws. Perfect. And and like every page, Peter, you, you got to know Brian for the 20 years, 20 plus years I've known him. Like he will pull out these air, these aviation disasters as, as kind of parables that are, are, are finely honed for the situation. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And so like each page I turned and, and also, you know, some of the things we've been reading uh, and discussing on this uh, Twitter space have been like kind of stories of how corporations got it right or got it wrong. So it's just this perfect intersectionality. So obviously, Brian, not surprisingly, your mom knows you very well. She does me well, and I feel like are you are, are you aviation disaster saving me? I mean, is this like I I feel I, do I do this to a peculiar or off putting degree? I mean, apparently I do. Uh, is, is this an intervention? Is what I'm, I mean, what I'm, I'm surprised. Um, I don't know how to answer this. Like, you, do you hear other people like when you say like J A L one two three? Like, does that mean anything to anybody else? Obviously, to Peter it does, but like to to normal people you know that it doesn't right but it's okay but i mean are you trying to are you picking on jl123 a specific example because that's um, a germane crash actually I, well mm. it's what i learned about the book yes so that crash is actually that's actually good as good a part as any to start um i first of all so peter robson the, uh, the author of flying blind peter thank you so much for joining us and um, let's actually start with JL123, just because uh, the, Adam brought it up. And this is all, this is the crash. This crash is horrifying. So the, there was a second set of rivets that were effectively missing. And there had been a tail strike earlier on this aircraft. The tail blew off mid-flight. And you really badly need the tail. And this crash was awful because... People knew for, uh, I mean, and Peter, maybe you know off the, off the top of your head, but this, this, well, it, Brian, I'm going to inter- interject just for a second because Peter, we, we lost you as a speaker again. Oh, whoops. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so are you, were you wondering how long it would take us to find out that we've lost Peter as a speaker as I go off on JL 123? <laughs> no, but th- this crash is terrible because this, th- this aircraft is doing these massive oscillations and people basically know that they're going to crash. And th- this is not a crash you want to be in. And Peter, I thought what was amazing about this horrifying crash is that that Boeing, and I didn't realize this, that Boeing had accepted responsibility to a surprising degree for the crash. I didn't, I, I never attributed this as a Boeing failure necessarily, but um, maybe you could lead us off there in terms of, of um, did we lose Peter again? Oh, Twitter Spaces. Oh, Twitter Spaces. As we, as, for folks, as, as we were getting started, right. um, Peter said, "Wow, this was super easy to get started." And we're just like, "Oh, uh, hold on to those warm feelings, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna need them later." That's I feel right. like I'm in the same kind of bad relationship with the dishwasher right now. Um, <laughs> and when we were talking about lunch, and I was one of my coworkers was kind of laughing at me, like, "Who's in a bad relationship with the dishwasher?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm getting a specific error code." He's like, "Wait a minute, is it an E24?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's an E24 and a Bosch dishwasher." It's like, "Look, like, it looks like we're in the same bad relationship." Um, but this this dishwasher knows to give me an error code whenever I begin to believe that it can function reliably. That's when it knows to fail, and I feel like Twitter Spaces has is wired into the same 
Like it's, it's whenever I begin to believe in Twitter spaces that it fails. And now he is, where is Peter? He's not. He seems to, it was in an odd state where it seemed to have think, thought he was waiting to speak and was not currently in the space. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Oh, Twitter, 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 Twitter. Please get this working robustly for people. Yeah, so much promise. Um, so, the, well, so the, this, but I, I, the, and I, I guess I, uh, okay, uh, there we go. There's P- Peter's back. And, 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 uh, hi, I'm back. <laughs> how, uh, how, how much of that did you hear? Could I, could I ask? Absolutely oh, nothing. Okay. okay. Um, all right. Um, so, Yes, the 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 JAL 123 was uh, an example of the integrity that Boeing had at that point in the mid 80s. This plane, that their their marquee plane, the 747, had crashed into a mountainside, and the authorities in Japan were were settling in for what they assumed would be long, arduous negotiations for Boeing to accept responsibility but but boeing did accept responsibility within a month and and ad- admitted that it was its own faulty repair job that had caused the the crash which which short-circuited uh what what you saw with the max which which was this long uh fight uh that was painful for for all involved um so yeah so so that that is a great place to start because it it really shows what's been what's been lost well and i think the other thing that's interesting about that but kind of that period then for boeing is when they the the triple seven then because i mean i associate boeing aircraft with the triple seven because it was the i mean it was done in a different kind of way. Peter, you talked a lot about the development of the triple seven in the book um, as an interesting point of contrast. Yeah. And, and it, it was, um, it was the, the airplane that Boeing did next after that 747 crash. And uh, what was, um, I heard it described as Boeing's Camelot. Uh, it, It was a period when, you had engineers in charge of the company. Uh, the the mantra for the program was was working together. The idea was that customers, suppliers, Boeing's engineers would all work together to develop an airplane that that worked from the first day. And it it went 18 years before it, it had a fatal crash, and it and it's still considered um, you know one of the best airplanes Boeing's ever made. And I, I mean, I remember at the time. And Adam, do you remember the triple seven being developed? I mean, I just. It, I remember the launch of it uh, to, to fanfare, but I was, uh, I, as I said, not not as plugged in necessarily to the launch of it as you might have been. Well, because they also made a really big deal about the fact that they were working with pilots on, uh, they, they, they made a big deal about the human factors in the cockpit. I mean, Peter, am I remembering that correctly? I, that's that's true. Yeah, that that they um they they did emphasize because they there there was um the, the, it was a point where Boeing had to consider. Should it should it you know should it adopt side stick controllers at, as Airbus had uh, you know how how much pilot involvement is is really needed, and so they um, analyzed it and, and kept with the the control yokes um, as they'd had in the past, but also with a substantial amount of of human pilot input. So they they carefully considered the human factors every step of the way, and and the interesting thing was that on previous Boeing airplanes, uh, the the 
chief test pilot had his name scrawled, his or her name, although it was all men, uh, scrawled under the window on the side. And instead on the 777, just that slogan, working together, was was scrawled on the side. So that to me is really interesting. And it ends up being standing in stark contrast, I feel, to the max and what happened to Boeing. I mean, that kind of, that very team-oriented approach that Boeing had, it seemed to be really selfless in a way. I mean, is that, it, it, am I... Is is that a fair assessment? I see that Peter's connecting and Peter's gone again. Why Twitter spaces? Why? Are we going to get our postmortem on Twitter spaces? I want the, <laughs> the t- Tom, I, th- I want the NTSB to investigate every. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think anyone's dying in this crash. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so you, you mentioned the team oriented res- response, and I missed the end of the question. <laughs> Yeah, just I mean, it, it just feels like as I was reading about the Max and the thing that I just, I, I mean, over and over again, you see the executive leadership in Boeing act in a ultimately very selfish way, and it just feels like wow, this this company was not that long ago so team oriented, and it turned into it became so self serving. It feels like, and how did it make that journey so quickly? It, it's it's distressing. Um, because it, it, it seemed to me as a reader that that self-serving nature uh, really manifested itself in some of the problems in the Max. Yeah, I mean that, that's a, I mean we could talk a long time on that question because because I think it is partly generational. The the um, leaders of Boeing. <laughs> what the heck? Jeez! The, come on! This is where I mean. It, it, we need uh, t- Tom. Oh man, this is where this, this has got to be connectivity on his side. Huh. Yeah, you think? Yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it's time to like turn on the Wi-Fi. Turn off the Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, turn on and off the Wi-Fi. Go right, talk to that FBI network. van. <laughs> Go talk to the FBI van. Exactly. Is there a Boeing van in your in, the, in your front yard by any chance? <laughs> Uh, so um and adam had you you had not i assume seen this book before no 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 my mom did not get this for me um (laughs) but uh but i was delighted for the recommendation and um you know you're talking about the 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 development of the triple seven and to me that that had a lot of um kind of soul of the new machine kind of feel of it it was you know a, a less depth in the construction of it but that same kind of firing all on all cylinders, kind of the the product um, of the of the team really come to coming to fruition. Did, did that? Did you get any sense of that as well? For sure. I mean, and I, I mean, I feel that like, I mean, I know you and I have both felt this about our own careers. That when I look at the the stuff that I am the most proud of as an engineer, are the things that I have worked with other people on. It is when we have gone like. When a team does something that that feels beyond their individual grasp, yes, yes, and absolutely. the triple seven, and I just I love the fact that the motto is working together. You know, so yeah, yeah. the triple seven does feel like the Naples altar there. Peter, we are um, so you may want to try like connectivity. Feels like it might be Tom tells us it's connectivity. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. Let me. Um, I'll, I'll move. I'll move to another spot. Yeah, I I I, I don't. I, if, and if there's any other tips, uh, you have a highly tech savvy audience i mean so, tom yeah. that does sound like blaming the pilots um you know the, the, but <laughs> that's right exactly it's the ground oh. crew 
It's the right. I know. It's uh, Tom's going to blame the poor network maintenance there. On, uh, um, but so I mean, and, and Peter, I've got like a, a a ton of questions. Um, and I I in terms of like where to start, there are lots of places to start. I think one of the things I'm just curious from your own perspective because you talk about the triple seven, you you started covering. You're gone again. Oh. No, you're, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, these are just a second. <laughs> because um, Peter, you were a, a reporter for from Bloomberg for Bloomberg covering Boeing at about this time, right? I mean, you said it started covering them certainly before the McDonnell Douglas uh, acquisition. I yeah, I had um, and can you hear me? I, I should ask. <laughs> okay, yeah, we can hear so, you. Yes. Yeah, I had um, uh, I had. I'd covered it, started covering aerospace um, in the mid '90s when I uh, worked for Bloomberg in Europe, and and uh, so I started covering aerospace then. And then I, I moved to Seattle in '98, and that so that was a year after the McDonnell Douglas merger. And so I was um, really hearing and seeing the the effects of that and the the infighting that that resulted. Okay, so tell me about that because I, I guess I mean I'd be I'm curious about your relationship with this story and when. You clearly you had a very early seat in terms of the, the the challenges with the merger and the shifting culture at Boeing. Wow. You need to. So you may want to Peter, you may want to try if if Wi-Fi is turned on on your device. Yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm actually on the, yeah, I'm on. On the, I'll, I'll try to turn it on. I'm, I'm on the wireless. So yeah, let me, let me try. Uh, yeah, let me try that. Yeah. I, and I, 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 I cannot tell you how much, it's, how embarrassing it is for the domain that I have to just basically tell you to try something else. I mean, can we, we can't, we can't get our act together. Like we literally, we can't even get our act together enough to discuss plane crashes, let alone aspire the building. <laughs> <safety critical> system. <laughs> Well, you haven't told me to turn it off and on yet, so that's, that's, I, I feel no, that's that's right, or, or just reboot right. it. Which I, I, I mean, I, I, oh, it's very frustrating. Anyway, um, so I mean, because you've got kind of a front row seat watching the Boeing culture shift, and I'm sure you were talking to people who were concerned that because at that point, McDonnell Douglas certainly with the all the challenges of the DC-10 had a reputation for being more financially oriented than engineering oriented. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the thing that I experienced as a young reporter uh, was in 2000, which was the engineers strike at Boeing. And, and that was an unusual thing because um, the, it wasn't particularly over wages and and benefits. It was more over the direction of the company because these engineers uh, who'd who'd been through that experience of developing the triple seven and feeling that the, the company was it was in, in interested in developing products? They they suddenly were they were seeing the winds shift, and they were seeing managers from McDonnell Douglas come in who had more of a short term mentality, and um, and they, and at the time it was the largest white collar strike uh, in in American history. And um, I'm going to ask if can you hear me? Yes, oh, so we okay, hear great. You. I, I get it. <laughs> I've gone through this a few times, so I, I get nervous <laughs> when it's quiet. But um, yeah, I know. So sorry. Um, anyway, so um, so so yeah. And, and, but at that time, you also had the ascendance of of um, General Electric, and that was you know, and Jack Welch was really the model at the time. And we 
are losing him. Okay, uh, so the Jack Welch thing is yeah. so honest. So I was and and with, with the so when the seven thirty seven Max with these two crashes, the uh, and I remember speaking about this actually in twenty nineteen. And my concern was that when we fully understood this, it was going to be revealed that Boeing had succumbed to a kind of Facebook-like move fast, break things kind of mentality, uh, a kind of a Silicon Valley damn the consequences mentality. And that's not really correct. Um, no. it, it's really not the, 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 the Facebook pathology. It's the Jack Welch pathology that actually – Jack Welch is actually um, – to th- that kind of zeitgeist that and the the the, the finance oriented thinking was really much more to blame. Yeah, than, it, it, than it was definitely not the short term risk taking. You're right. It was the it was the myopic uh, cost cutting. And so, yeah. Peter, did you try rebooting it? Peter? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's next. Um, but you you were I I think I just caught the end of that. You you were talking about. Um, the, the short-term thinking and, and, and Jack Welch. Well, and just in terms of what you were beginning to see with the strike at Boeing and beginning to see this kind of, this very, uh, the cost-cutting mentality, finance-oriented mentality. I mean, it's like in, in a company, you've got several key stakeholders. Mm-hmm. You've got shareholders and investors, you've got employees, and you've got customers. And, and then you've got kind of society writ large. And to me, you know, the ordering when you obviously don't want to have to choose between these things. Um, but the culture of a company is kind of dictated by how those choices are made. And they were very clearly with the triple seven, they were very clearly choosing. I mean, clearly my belief is you choose customers first. Um, but they were clearly not choosing customers first. They were choosing the finance first, the shareholders first, ultimately the investors first. Yeah. And that, and that came across, you know, at these moments when, you felt finance was ascendant. I mean, and that was, you know, early two thousands when um, the, the mantra was five and five, you know, we can quadruple, quadruple the, the stock price in five years. Um, and then um, just before the, the first max crash, uh, Boeing CFO uh, had a um, meeting with his finance staff and the stock was about 300, 350 at the time. And, and he was talking about, you know that if they kept doing what they were doing, it could get to eight hundred or nine hundred. There, there was there was real excitement at at Boeing. You know that it was finally joining the big leagues of these global powerhouses. So, you know, Dennis Mullenberg re- repeatedly talked about you know how he saw Boeing as a, a global industrial champion, and and you you could sense his excitement that after all this time at Boeing, that that it 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 was he thought you know finally performing and satisfying wall street but uh, go ahead adam because well well, peter you were you you mentioned in the book uh the the parallels with enron and i just listened to a great podcast about enron and i was fascinated about it in like in 2003 2004 um was it that same kind of underlying mentality i know bravo to your child or or roommate who who Well, I did. I did move, and I, I moved uh, into the, the earshot of a clarinet lesson. So um, <laughs> it, great. it does sound good. Yeah, you you yeah. know, Adam and I aspire to get our children to do anything as right. remotely productive as clarinet. So honestly, that's very impressive. You're inspiring. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
So sorry, Adam. Do you want to? Oh, just like what you know, the 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 parallels with the Enron seemed seemed really spot on. And oh, and and we lost Peter again, despite (laughs) despite the clarinet. Despite the clarinet. Uh, in terms of like Boeing aspiring to be not just a maker of planes, but this global industrial complex. And, and and it it seemed to work out sort of, I mean, maybe slightly better for them, but, but not that much better. But also like, how does Boeing have an inferiority complex? Like, I don't understand, like you're the maker of the triple seven. You are, are an American industrial powerhouse. I, why do you feel you need Jack Welch, like financial engineering? To uh, to appease Wall Street, I mean, it seems like a, such a strange inferiority complex for a company to have to think that it it hadn't achieved all. I mean, because to me, it was an American icon, but apparently that's not enough. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. It, it, it I mean, that that in, in, in inferiority complex uh, really did come through in, in that early two thousand period, and and that was in part driven by you know Harry Stonecipher who came in from ironically from McDonnell Douglas, which had been the also ran, um, and and really drove home the message that that Boeing, you know, in his words, had never been a you know successful business over over the last fifty years that you know it hadn't performed well enough um, to to meet Wall Street's demands and that. You know, they may be great engineers, but, you know, it. people are in, you know, companies exist to make money, you know, which is an almost direct quote of his. And, and so so Phil Condit, who was Boeing CEO at the time and, and had been a great engineer through his career, um, felt, you know, did did feel, you know, insecure about his position with with Wall Street. There, there was one meeting in the late 90s where he was almost in, in tears after describing the brow beating he'd taken, uh, in, in New York. Um, so that, so that's, that, that, that's, that's what I was getting at in talking about the inferiority complex that that's kind of in the DNA, um, over the last 20, 30 years. Oh my God. That is just so corrosive to have your CEO who is by the way, coming from the company that you putatively acquired. I mean, this is McDonnell Douglas. I mean, just amazing to me. And obviously it's not lost on the Boeing engineers. McDonnell Douglas had a terrible track record the dc-10 uh, and i i'm actually one question i'm dying to ask you peter is I, you you didn't have um the rise and fall of the dc-10 um in your in your your bibliography but i'm sure it, uh, you obviously knew a lot about the dc-10 i mean clearly the boeing engineers knew that the dc-10 had been very problematic md-11 had been very problematic and to have like this turkey Tell you, you know that that your uh, that the company has been misrun. It just feels so abusive. I mean, it's just shocking. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it, it is. I mean, and that's um, that you're you're getting at where where the where, where the infighting, you know, where where the frustration, you know, comes from on the the side of the longtime Boeing employees um, because the the DC ten had you know had problems, had had repeated crashes and. Um, you know, McDonnell Douglas had been uh, cited in a well-regarded, well-read book built to last by Jim Collins as the reference company, you know, the, the not visionary company. And, and Boeing was cited as the visionary company. So, um, yeah, it, it sounds like you've you've done your share of uh, of, of DC-10 uh, reading over the and years. It, well, and, and it, it was a specific book that was recommended to me as I kind of made reference to in, in that original Twitter thread when the company I was at, Sun Microsystems, was dealing with a really serious quality problem. 
And it was recommended to me to understand how corporate culture affects quality, and which it emphatically does, and it did in McDonnell Douglas. And then mm. to, to have that infect Boeing is just tragic. I mean, it is the and Stone Cipher sound honestly it does not sound sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, a question that I'm just dying to ask you that I think I'm, I'm just going to get out earlier rather than later. Good God, the rampant infidelity among these executives. Uh, I, I, I mean, are any of these people true to their spouses? I just could. I, <laughs> Is that as was that as shocking to you as it is to to the reader? Maybe I'm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean uh, that's uh, that's partly why I included it. I I did, I I was I was surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. In the first half of the book, I feel like every other page was some notion of some some description of some passing description of infidelity. I, you didn't linger, what you know, to your credit, Peter, but you also kind of helped understand the mentality of some of these folks. And then one of them was also married to their cousin as one of their, uh, but had to fly to Oregon to get married or something. Anyway, perhaps neither here nor there, but that, it was all fairly shocking. I have to say, I mean, and obviously I love, Peter, I love this book and I loved every, I, this book is, it is so well written, which is sadly uh, n- n- not the norm, um, but it is, it's, it, it is well written. It is so well sourced, um, and I, 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 the footnotes are terrific. I love the way you presented some of these details that Adam is talking about, where you didn't really editorialize them. It's like, I'm just going to kind of drop this, like, factually true statement out here, and, you know, I'll let you, the reader, kind of figure out what, what, right. yeah, what you make of this. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. I, you know, I really appreciate your, your reading it, you know, and I, I felt, um, and, and, you know, your comments and and. Care, you know, care, careful um, thinking about it. It, it um, I mean, it really is something that I felt I had to write because uh, I had seen this shift in the culture, and I, I did think that uh, culture does play a huge role in a company's performance, in product, in you know what we ultimately experience. Um, so, thank you. And you, you, I'm sure you were hearing these predictions after the McDonald acquisition. And you got the strike, and I'm sure you got. And cause I, I've been in corporate cultures where you can feel them changing out from underneath you. And as an engineer, you kind of want to be wrong. As an engineer, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm actually. I hope I'm wrong, but I feel that this is going to manifest itself in the aircraft. I'm sure you must be hearing that in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 that and that's the 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 hard thing is that you there's always going to be a certain amount of um, grumbling and and trying to read the tea leaves at any company. So it's trying to understand what is uh what what is it truly going to cause a problem um so it and the thing about the aircraft industry is that it takes place over so many years so even if a mistake is being made uh you may not see the evidence of that mistake for 10 years and it and then it plays out over a very long time over the the loss of market share and then eventually you know the death of the company and 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 you're you saw that you know it people in the aerospace industry even you know a great book that i read um uh which is widely read is you know the sporty game by john newhouse which was written in the early 70s and and in that book you could sense that mcdonald douglas was not long for the industry but it took 20 years for that to to actually play out 25 years even and so because the time frames are so long 
did you have with with all the connections that you had at Boeing? Did you have any sort of of advanced indicator that the seven thirty seven Max uh, posed a a risk to the traveling public, or was your first indicator the the the, the Lion Air crash? No, yeah, I mean that's a great question, and no, I mean I I didn't. And um, the, the, first there was the Lion Air crash, and and then there there it was unusual, although it was playing out mostly in the trade press, um, that there was this um, conflict between Lion Air and Boeing over the, the cause of the crash. But to, to most people thought it would be a, a one-off and that Boeing would, would fix it. And the, and the real shocking thing was the second crash and, and the fact that it, it was the same problem. Uh, and, you know, I, I had talked to people at the time who said they, they, they could not understand how Boeing didn't move with speed to, to fix this software issue, which it, it knew, you know, within a, a week of the, of the first crash, um, that it would have to correct. And I mean, it, certainly the, the, just the fact that they knew so quickly that MCAS was involved and the, the fact that they had such a quick hunch tells you how much internally they were afraid this was going to be an issue. It, it, when you first heard that line air crash, what, did you have kind of some immediate realization that, good God, this is the McDonald Douglas coming home to roost? I mean, that, was that your initial thought? It it, it wasn't. I I um it, it really took the second crash from for me to it, it engage more with the story and and try to understand what happened because it was after the second crash that uh, it became clear there was a problem. I, I would just like to put in a a short plug for Ethiopian Airlines. Have you ever flown Ethiopian? <laughs> I, I have not. Ethiopian is great. Have you flown Ethiopian, Adam? No, but our sponsor this week is Ethiopian <laughs> Airlines. Uh, Ethiopian Airlines. Have you – no, I have, – have I, have I already talked to you about No, no, no. Airlines? But please, go. Ethiopian is great. No, I took Ethiopian to – because uh, Ethiopian uh, flies what's called a fifth freedom flight, which is a flight that, that uh, neither uh, the origin nor the destination or the flag of the carrier from LAX to Dublin – on uh, on its way um, to to Addis Ababa, and the because if you draw a line from LA to Addis Ababa, it goes to Dublin. So I flew to from LAX to uh, to Dublin um, for my father in law's funeral, actually with my with my, my then four year old daughter. They were great. They were such a good airline. They are they were just so. I mean, it's just very clear that you have a absolutely the pride of Ethiopia on pilots, flight attendants. I mean, the aircraft were in great shape. It was just like. A great airline, and I. It, so when, because I kind of feel Peter was certainly with the Lion Air crash, and you talk about this in the book. There's this kind of sense that like that Boeing basically says that this is a shoddy airline, mm-hmm. and it, it's a discount carrier. It's in Indonesia, and it's kind of gross. It's like this is one of your customers, and you are implying, uh, and not just even implying, like outright stating that they are not that this is pilot error effectively before we know anything about the crash mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the i mean it was pretty galling so with the, when it, with the ethiopian crash i don't know i felt that as a, as a person who'd been a passenger on ethiopian i was somewhat relieved that they didn't tr- seem to try the same things with ethiopian and malign the airline they seemed to accept that this, that there was a february 7 max problem here yeah, I, I, it it became much harder to uh, say that it was an airline specific problem um, after that second crash. Although you you 
did still hear that, that same message and in, in you know, the Sam Graves, the congressman from Missouri, um, was still taking up that message um, in, in May after the second crash and, and saying that, you know, you have to know how to fly the plane. Um, so quietly behind closed doors, it, it's lobbyists were still pushing that message. Um, but yes, pu- publicly after the second crash, Boeing couldn't overtly blame its customer in the way it had with Lion Air. Peter, you say that, but then I, in 2020, when they, when they uh, ungrounded the plane, it sounded like there were still some rumblings of gaslighting of the customers and the pilots. Yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, and, and Dave Calhoun um, in, in 2020, um, he's asked by New York Times reporters, um, you know, would the same event have occurred with American pilots on a U.S. airline? And, and he asked to, to go off the record. And then when they said no, he said, I'll forget it. You, you know the answer. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems, you know, they can't help themselves. But I, I think him asking to go off the record means they also know that they feel they can't say that yeah, anymore. Of, of all the terrible sort of moments and, and terrible folks and terrible decisions in the book, that one actually really stuck with me. Because you also described... Uh, you know, f- people failing in the simulator, uh, saying, you know, there was some activity that the pilots needed to take within 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And basically every pilot failed this test that they, mm-hmm. that they put it through. Um, so it, it didn't really have to do with, with some deficiency of these pilots. Yeah, yeah, you, st- you still had, that was uh, an inspector um, it, it, in Dallas who took it upon himself to, to run a similar test um, to, to, to what had happened in the crashes. And and that instructor was finding that um, pilots weren't able to recognize it as quickly as someone who was expecting it in a, in a test. So, so can we just get into the technical details here just for a second? Because I've got mm-hmm. kind of a burning question here about the, so the, Angle of attack indicator is very closely linked to the problem in that, stunningly, they only used a single angle of attack indicator for input to MCAS. Is that is that mm-hmm. correct, Peter? Yeah, and the idea is that the pilot is the backup, so it's not a single thread. You you have the pilot as a backup. And this is where my, but your brain must want to just like pop when people try to make that argument. The pilot doesn't know this is happening. It's like, how can the pilot be a backup when he doesn't know that MCAS has effectively taken over? And the could we talk about the AOA disagree light? Well, and, hey, hey, Brian, before we get there, but, yeah, sorry, you know, Peter. I mean, for folks who have not read it yet, maybe Peter, you could talk a little bit about MCAS because it's so uh, kind of critical to understanding this pathology. Sure. So, so, um, so M- MCAS is a piece of software that's designed to. Um, to intervene if the um, pitch of the plane is is um, going to if the nose is going too high and the plane is likely to enter a stall, um, and so if the AOA uh, indicator senses that the angle is too high, it'll um, the uh, tail the the tail uh, will move and, and then the nose of the plane will will push down. Um, so, uh, however, in, in the Lion Air case what happened was that the AOA indicator was reading too high and uh, the nose was pushed down. And the thought was that pilots would be, because when the, the um, uh, tail is moving, um, the um, there's a wheel in the plane that moves and um, 
that's to keep the plane in, in trim. And uh, the thought was that pilots would notice the wheel moving and would intervene. Uh, however, that didn't happen because the, that wheel also moves um, when the plane is meant to, uh, when the plane needs to stay automatically in trim, uh, as happens all through the flight. So in this case, it was just a very surprising set of events uh, that was soon after takeoff. And it's also unusual uh, that that would be happening soon after takeoff as, as well. Um, does that help? Yeah, absolutely. And, and just okay. for, you know, just to emphasize this point, like MCAS is software, yeah. which is overriding effectively the human pilots. Right. It, it, it's software that they don't know about because it, 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 it is, it is only in the glossary of, of the, the, their, the documents for the max. There's no actual, because, and Peter, maybe you want to go into why, they fought to uh, to eliminate MCAS even from the documentation for the aircraft. Well, the the main thing was that it it would have um, potentially changed the level of training needed for the newer version of the seven thirty seven. Uh, it's hugely expensive uh, for um, pilots to train on a new model. So um, Boeing from the start wanted to have only uh, level B training, which is what you get if you're um, training on an iPad. Um, and not level D, which is simulator training. Uh, and, and if MCAS had been in, uh, emphasized as a new feature, it might have jeopardized uh, this level D training. Um, and that would have triggered, you know, potentially, you know, Boeing had promised Southwest Airlines a million dollars in the airplane if they did need uh, simulator training. Yeah, and I think, it, it, you know, this particular issue is an, it is an interesting issue where the customer is not necessarily always right, or at least you need to be transparent with the customer. The customers don't, they want an aircraft that flies like their extant 737 fleet so they don't need to retrain. And what Boeing needed to do was have a transparent conversation with Southwest and explain why we, we can't do that. Like that, what you're asking for is is actually going to yield an aircraft that's going to be, that is uh, going to do things behind the pilot's back. And we actually have to explain that. But they didn't want to do that apparently to their customers just because of the cost involved in training. That's yeah. That's an interesting point. The, the and and um, there there was a similar situation with the the previous version of the seven thirty seven in the the nineties, the the next gen versions. And Southwest again was was um, at that time was the one wanting the minimal changes, and they wanted um, to stick to these old kind of analog style um, dials on the displays. Um, Boeing knew that others would want more modern di dials. They were calling the old ones the steam gauges. And so they sort of quietly you know, designed in the newer displays, but then um, told Southwest, you know, they could have their version. And then eventually Southwest came around, you know, pretty soon after the planes entered service and said, you know, can we get these new dials? And Boeing said, sure. And, and all we have to do is switch a button because they had already designed it. Is, was Southwest one of the two airlines that was act, that actually wanted the AOA indicator? They didn't. Um, they didn't have um, the the raw indicator. Um, so so they so their airplanes would not have gotten that disagree light either. It, who did have the AOA indicator? Um, I, I know. I know that. I know that American did that. That came up in the meeting um, between Boeing and its pilots later. The the one of the union reps took credit for having pushed for the the indicator so could you explain what the aoa indicator is and why it's so important and why it's so germane to these crashes yeah it's um so so uh in these crashes um the, so there's two 
indicators, one on each side of the plane. Um, it switches on each flight uh, which of these indicators is feeding into the um, the MCAS, and so um, um, in this in the in the in the line air crash, you you had um, this you you had a situation where clearly the AOA information was wrong, and that would have been helpful information for the pilots to have. How, however, the Lion Air pilots didn't see an, uh, an, an alert saying AOA disagree because they hadn't bought a separate AOA indicator uh, because the software had been incorrectly um, it, it had been incorrectly designed so that only the customers who had purchased the indicator got this disagree light. So it was it was it, it, it was just a cascading series of errors that, that yeah. were never dis disclosed that at the time hadn't been disclosed to, to customers or, or the FAA. It really was. And what a disaster to not have that AOA disagree light, because I feel like as you know, someone who was just reading kind of the trade press at the time, there was this kind of strong implication that Lion Air and Ethiopian had opted to not purchase something that would have made the aircraft more reliable. There was some redundancy feature that they hadn't purchased, was kind of the implication. And that's actually not the case at all. The AOE indicator is a raw indicator that the pilot should necess necessarily need to see, is, is, was my read on it, mm -hmm. and that not many airlines actually used it. I mean, American apparently did, and apparently there's at least one or two others, but most airlines did not opt for it. Um, is is that correct? Yeah, and that from from what I, I, I was told, that the AO indicator is it's often used by Navy pilots. That's a, that's a, mm. something that they well, they need to land on uh, you know carriers, and so you know AOA and the, the hitting the you know making sure their tail isn't hitting the the deck is is important to them. So so it so it's important to some pilots. It's not important to others, but it would have been important to all pilots and especially the maintenance crew to know that the AOA was an issue um, well, after that well, first flight. Especially astounding because the the flight, if I understood this correctly, that same aircraft that uh, that was that led to that was in that Lion Air crash failed in a similar way in a previous flight. But the deadhead pilot uh, did what you had had mentioned earlier, noticed the the trim wheel moving, and they were able to correct it. But then the ground crew never got that indicator. So even though that flight, even though the previous flight and that same aircraft had gone through the same scenario that could have easily have led to that same crash. The ground crew, even when alerted of that, couldn't make the appropriate repairs. Yeah, yeah, it's it's chilling. And and the you know the one the one of the Boeing CEOs who who met with American Airlines pilots later told them, on your airplane, this wouldn't have happened um, be, because you have you know you bought the AOA indicator essentially. Um, but but it's like you bought the undercoat on the car, or like the racing stripe. Right. I mean, like the thing, right? I mean, like the thing you bought. Like, oh, I get it. You know, for a Navy pilot, you know, it's but it, it's a little bit skeuomorphic. And the the idea that Lion Air certainly was not there was not a, a common understanding. Even it sounds like at the FAA that the AOA was actually load bearing with respect to the safety of the aircraft. Yeah, and and it it, it is something that um, later the FAA was surprised to learn about and and it, it, it you know this decision to not update the software and fix the problem um was was made at a, at a level you know after a safety review board meeting of of boeing and and was not that was not shared with the fa at the time yeah so i because it seems to me that the, the the fact that there was a i just cannot wrap my head around the fact that a single indicator 
was being used to fly the aircraft. I mean, it just feels like, and clearly some engineers did have an allergic reaction to this and did point out that, that we should at least be looking at both of these indicators. If they disagree, let the pilot fly the aircraft, which is what they, I, I know they they have since done. But I, I think that this kind of is a, is a decent segue, Peter, to, to, to Curtis Eubank, who, if there's a hero to the story, am I wrong <laughs> to, read, to read too much heroism into Curtis Eubank, a young engineer who seems to um, be really trying to speak truth to power on the the peril of having a single AOA indicator. Is that a is that a fair read? Yeah, I mean he's somebody who, at you know, great risk to his uh, his career, you know, st- stood up um, both both before and and after the crashes to to ask for you know to add to ask for more safety instrumentation on the plane it, he, he the, the 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 reason that the aoa indicator is uh you know seems to be ancient is that the, the, the 737 was designed in the in the 60s and it it does in some cases have these you know the engineers call them single thread designs but in this case the single thread was considered okay because the pilots uh were supposed to be the backup uh as we discussed you know, that was no longer that that should have been re-examined when pilots aren't even aware of this feature that had been added um but eubank um and uh, others at, at boeing um who, who proposed to executives you know they, they they were allergic to um to, to the alerting system they, they felt that the alerting system was outdated for the pilots and they proposed a synthetic uh that was something called synthetic airspeed which would have um, which, which would have shut off, uh, would, you know, which, which would have prevented some of these, um, which would have prevented MCAS from activating on the basis of one single outlandish reading. It, it, there would have been a second pair of eyes on um, sensors throughout the aircraft to prevent it from doing outlandish things on the basis of, of bad pieces of information. And so you obviously, I mean, I gather that you talked to Eubank for the book. Is that I can't. I can't talk about my sources for the. Oh, fair enough. Book, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I guess. I guess. I. I thought that he had been quoted verbatim from you, but I guess not. Um, but he's been, you, He's written. He's written many letters to. Um. To, that's what I meant about him talking. You know, speaking out after. It. Um. Yeah. That he. He. He's. Uh, wrote at least two letters to Congress. Um. And one filing to the FAA talking about. Uh, talking about what further improvements were needed on the Max. And, and this is all obviously after both crashes. Because I mean, I just, I have to say, like, I I wonder, as an engineer, there are times you really don't want to be vindicated, and you kind of like, God, I, I hope I'm wrong. And in you know, in, in in his case, not only was he right, but with with so many so many lives lost, um, it must be psychologically very uh, must weigh on one. Um, I, I thought of, and you made reference to the the, the Challenger disaster in, in at the end of the book. Um, and I know that many of the engineers there were decisions that they didn't make. Um, they uh, ultimately really weighed on them. Um, and it must have been really difficult for these 737 engineers who had been kind of um, shouted down. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it, it, and you, you mentioned the Challenger crash. I mean, the, the engineers who were involved in that uh, went, went to their graves, you know, still talking about um you know, talking to people they'd worked with on that and, you know, did they do enough to raise alarms? Um, so I, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, the, the, the difficult thing 
with this is that it, it's easy to think of your role as being just one small piece of it. And, and it, it is so compartmentalized that maybe there's a part of you that can say, well, you, you know, it wasn't me because I only did X, you know, piece of equipment or X system. Um, and, and that's why, that's why I focus so much uh, time in the book on, you know, leaders like Joe Sutter, who, who did see their role as trying to make sure that everyone saw how their small piece of the project contributed to the whole. Um, and, and it, and that, that's a real talent and, you know, and people I came across who, you know, could explain that word, you know, I, I just had huge respect for. Totally. And the, I mean, this whole, and again, it's, you know, working together right on the triple seven and the, the whole idea that you, not only do we all have an important role to play, but we also have a response. We all, each of us has a responsibility. And one of the things that I definitely wonder is the, because obviously a bunch of us here are in software engineering or software engineers. And, you know, in we've got a lot of software being written right now that is being used in ways that are, um, are ethically questionable for sure. And I mean, I wonder what was going through the minds of the engineers who are writing the MCAS code or the engineers at, at, at Collins aerospace was the, the sub on the AOA indicator Mm-hmm. But I, I, did they write the MCAS? Was MCAS written at Boeing? It, MCAS was written by a team at Boeing, which handed the specifications to to Collins. So, um, the, I, the 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 issue was that the the team at Boeing had not thought carefully through how they were designing it. Uh, so, yeah. And but the actual MCAS software itself, the software that is kind of acting on this single sensor and is going to effectively fly the aircraft that software is, is Boeing authored software. It, it, it's a, it's a Boeing design that's handed to the supplier to, to execute the, oh. the yeah. Okay. Um, so, I, I, yeah, so, I mean, for us in software, this is an incredibly germane question. It's like, this, mm-hmm. I think we were, I mean, like Adam, aren't you like dying to see the actual source code for this thing? I mean, sort of, I'm also just like, that that's the part that of the book that made me so itchy was thinking about like, there's a person who wrote that code. There's a person Mm -hmm. who made the change to say the most I can move the the flaps is 0.6 degrees, but then it changed later on to be whatever it was, two degrees. Yeah. Uh, And just the, the, I mean, either it's a senior engineer making that and they should feel itchy or it's a junior engineer who is just, being set up to fail and in both cases it i I think there's so many other failings in the book but that was that just felt so close because yeah brian i can imagine kind of the simplicity in some ways of the code the 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 facileness of that code yeah and just and i think it's an interesting kind of it's either a senior engineer who's just like okay i'm going to take responsibility for it but it feels like it's much more likely a junior engineer that is, or, or someone who is, if not junior in years, certainly um, not questioning why are we making this change and what are the consequences of it? It feels. Yeah, I mean, by the by the time that change in MCAS was introduced to, to extend it to low speed situations, uh, it was considered that the bulk of the work of the project was done. Uh, I was told that a lot of people had moved on to other projects by that point, and there and there was a small team that was assigned um, to to work on it. Um, so, those those are all great questions. Yeah, it's I mean it and it and it is. Um, it's incredible to 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 think of um, 
typing on a computer screen and then seeing, you know, a a result like we, like we saw. You know, Peter, one one of the things about the MCAS, and I think you alluded to it earlier, is that there was a feeling, I I believe you described, among pilots about Boeing that they preferred it to Airbus because the, the Boeing software would never take over. That the that the pilot was in control in a way more deterministically than than they were with Airbus, mm-hmm. and, and, and was that right? And can you describe that that kind of scene as as the pilots were informed about MCAS and their reaction? Yeah, I mean, because it, it Boeing had been considered always sort of the, the pilot's air, aircraft maker that they they didn't um, it, it, with the Airbus. I mean, the, the simplest way understanding is that they um they have they have side stick controllers at airbus and so when one when the pilot on one side makes a change the pilot pilot on the other side doesn't feel that instantly um in his controller um so there have been situations where um confusion crashes have happened because one pilot is unaware of what the other is doing but with boeing both control yokes move and uh there's the, the, the boeing has continued to have that tactile feel in, in all their designs so um but at the same time um planes are mostly controlled by flight control software now um so um the fact that um the fact that software in, you know w- took such control of a boeing plane was was shocking because at boeing the the thought had been that yes there was software but but pilots are still in control of it well, and it just, I, I wonder, Peter, if the software engineers that were working on that had that kind of that blood on the seats, as you call that. Was that a Joe Sutterism or where's blood on the seats? Sorry, sorry you, you kind of, you broke up a little bit. Well, you talk about blood on the seats is a, and I'm trying to, is that a, is that a Joe Sutterism or where does that come from? I'm sorry. Uh, can, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you not hear okay. me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay. Um, yeah, that was that was so this is the the blood on the seat covers. Um, yeah, in the book. Yeah, this this was um, uh, um, a, a product safety manager who I talked to who who was really you know was really giving an example of um, how the culture was in in the '90s and earlier that you had um, a strong understanding that uh, product safety had to be paramount that those people had to be represented at meetings. And he remembered, you know, at a meeting on the 737 next gen, um, someone had proposed some changes to the fuel tank that he, he thought would leave a potential single point failure. And, and he stood up and said, how much, how much blood do you want on the seat covers? And then eventually the design was changed. Um, but that, you know, that, that was what it what it took. You know, you you needed to have somebody stand up and and say that at meetings. And and from everything I've been told uh, at the max, you you didn't have that. And it's, and it's because uh, the the finance function became dominant and the engineering function less so. And it, it was felt that you would risk your career if you stood up and said something like that. Man, and just to it just to, to not be to have that direct connection, I think, is so important. And it just feels like those who were writing software for the MCAS, and I can say I cannot wrap my brain around outsourcing flight control software to a subcontractor. I just feel that, you know, nobody cares about your software like you do. And I think it's very hard to outsource responsibility. Uh, it's very hard. To, I think it's, it's obviously not impossible. And clearly, like, subcontractors are important for any large, complicated endeavor. 
but boy, it feels like they outsource. I, I, it's shocking to me that th- that ultimately they were writing a specification and not the software itself for for the MCAS. Yeah, well, well, Boeing had had um, over time. It's it's again, you know, to cut costs. It's it's handed uh, resp- responsibilities for huge, you know, pieces of the airplane it, on the seven eighty seven. They handed over, you know, not just manufacturing work, but complete design on on sections of the airplane, and and now and and that led to huge problems on the seven eighty seven with you know ultimately fifty billion in costs and. And 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 now, uh, as the seven eighty seven is uh, experiencing these these manufacturing defects, you you have this hunt, you know, among suppliers worldwide to to try to understand, you know, why these defects are happening. Well, and, and you say cost cutting, but I, I thought this was particularly stark that the seven thirty seven Max was taken on because they thought they could do it for three billion, as opposed to a new plane costing twenty billion. Uh, were the, are those the right numbers? Yeah, I think it was two two and a half for the for the derivative, and yeah, the new plane could could cost as much as twenty. Um, and uh, you know, unfortunately, be, because of that experience with the seven eighty seven, um, that that may have played into Boeing's decision making as well, because they had sunk so much in the seven eighty seven, it it would have been difficult to swallow another new development. But if Boeing had followed the design plan it had laid out in the early 2000s the it would have had the 787 done years previously and it would have introduced a new 737 and i was told by john Leahy, who ran sales at airbus that that would have been potentially career threatening for him because he had assured uh, others at airbus that that boeing wouldn't do that yeah when if you think of like a triple seven like aircraft that is targeted at the 737 market with with, with an all glass cockpit and all of the it just feels like they, they could have yes sorry oh, can okay. you hear us yeah can you i can hear you yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 so i guess one question i would have is did so i mean economically financially strictly financially this was ruinous this decision that they did with seven thirty that they made with 737 max has boeing internalized that these were ruinous decisions and these were the wrong decisions and we actually need to return to the old pre-McDonald Boeing? Is that something? I mean, because it feels like a lot of these people still have jobs. So I, I wonder how deeply that's been internalized. It doesn't It doesn't seem that it's been internalized. And, and you, you know, the, the thing about... Yep. God, we had such a good streak there. Yeah, really. This is what my dishwasher does, man. I'm telling you, Bosch dishwasher does the exact same thing. Long stretch, you think we're past it, and then it's E24, no dishes. Hey, hey, hey Matt, I, I noticed that you joined a little while ago as a speaker. Um, while Peter's gone, can you tee up a question, or, or, or did you have a comment you wanted to make? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I did have a couple of questions there about, you know, firstly, since all airplanes today are fly-by-wire, really it's the computer flying the plane. How different is MCAS from any of that other than just a shoddy implementation of one? Um, the second part that I've got is really surrounding the split between the notion that like there's substandard carriers crashing and the fact that there are options. And <laughs> is, is there some level of attitude there of like, well, of course you'd buy the whole plane if you were doing the responsible thing, um, where, you know, the notion internally is at least that 
the fact that you didn't buy the entire airplane and all of its bells and whistles, was that considered to be a, a sign of a substandard operator, even though on the business side, clearly no one is buying all of them? Well, so two things on that. I mean, all these features seem to be standard on Airbus. And how, how crazy is it that you have an airplane with like an in-app purchase for a critical <laughs> safety I know. feature? I, mean, just, I know. I just you have like the yeah, uh, sorry, folks. We need to divert our license manager crashed in the cockpit, and we no longer. I mean, yeah, exactly. So can you? I mean, that imagine writing that piece of software. Like you're saying that this safety piece of software I just wrote requires them to input a key to unlock this. Like, I, I mean, I think like you need to walk away at that moment, right? You would hope. You would, I, and that is, I mean. At what point does a software engineer stand up and say, like, "Look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push this. I'm not going to. This is not right. This is, this is not. Yeah. We're not going about this the right way. This is wrong by our customers." I mean, it's and I mean, even aside from being safety critical, um, it, it it is. We're going to get it back here. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, those are man. Those are great questions. I mean, I definitely have the because uh, the other thing I. I just, find galling about this is the fact that it, all of this is happening without the uh, the pilot's awareness um, is just, I mean, without any indicator, without other, there he is, hold on. All right, Peter, I think we've got you back. Uh, Peter, you there? Quite. Nope. Getting there. Oh, there we go. Hello? Yes. Hey, Peter, you're back. Hello? So yeah, I, I, Peter, I'm not sure if you, if you heard it, but uh, Matt, yes, I can hear you. <laughs> Hi. Hey, yeah, uh, this is all because you praised Twitter Spaces early on. I'm telling you, you got it. It's uh, the um, Matt, and I think you had a, you had a good question for Peter. Yeah. So go, go ahead. Yeah, I had two of them there. Um, so uh, firstly, to what degree within Boeing is it sort of considered that? Um, you had mentioned earlier that the notion was that these carriers that were seeing crashes were irresponsible in some way. Um, and like, was there some sort of a disconnect on the business side and the engineering side where, of course, anyone who's reasonable would have bought most of the options on the plane? Um, and versus, you know. Oh, we, yeah, standard I, operators who keep optioning it down. I think I said it better the first time, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just in general, it's surprising that so much of the aircraft is like optional. I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure. I'm getting you anymore. You are. We can hear you. Oh, okay. We, yeah. So uh, um, this, this is just about the the shift. You're, you're asking about the shift to um, make, making more functions options as opposed to standard i mean more there seems to be this notion that it's the bottom tier carriers who are having problems um and obviously it's the only way that you can sort of have to define who's a bottom tier carrier is that whether or not they've bought the options on it so it to what degree was engineering aware of the optionality of these features versus just assuming that, well, of course everyone would have that. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question because um, you, you, I mean, com just communication is a big issue here. It, you, you, and that this came up in re reports after the 
fact by the you know joint, joint authorities um, looking at um, what went wrong. I mean, they they looked at just siloization and and that um, certain units would have information and others wouldn't. Um, and so and and you had um, even you know months before the max um, was delivered, you know, one one engineer asked another. Um, and this came out in the congressional investigation, you know, what, what happens if, if we have a faulty AOA and then the other engineer says, if that happens, MCAS shuts down immediately. Um, so, so even at that late stage, there was, there was bad information going around and there was an assumption about what was happening, which wasn't, which wasn't true. And then, and Matt, I think you had a second question then. Yeah. The, the other one was, you know, how different is MCAS from other types of fly-by-wire systems that we're more used to seeing, right? Um, at this point, you know, in pretty much every aircraft, it's actually the computer flying the plane and the pilot flying the computer. And, you know, aside from whatever illusion the pilot has that he is in control, mm-hmm. um, like, is, how is MCAS substantially different, or is it just that it's based off faulty sensor data? Yeah, it's um, it's it's not. You know, it, 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 the the people working at the time, you know, thought of it as just another function. There, there, there is an you know, there's another feature that controls the spoilers on landing, which they, um, you know, some people that I talked to thought that the you know they considered that to be more of a change than, than MCAS. Um, I mean, the, the issue was, was that um, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing that was said to me was that the, there should have been more scrutiny because MCAS is, is it's, you know, the tail is a really powerful control surface and within, you know, just 30, 40 seconds, it's, it's able to crash the plane. So um, that, so that that's, one critical feature of it. Um, but in, but in terms of, um, it being software, um, controlling, uh, software involved in the flight controls, you're, you're, you're right. That's not, that, that's not unusual. It, so that's an interesting point though about the tail, because I mean, I, I, I do feel that it, it, part of what makes these crashes so tragic is that they, all of them lost all lives, mm-hmm. which, it does feel like in that regard, it looks like the JL-123, it looks like the rudder hardover that the 737 suffered from. I mean, mm-hmm. You made reference to the, the Flight 427, US Air, and and the, you know, growing up in Colorado, the, the, the Colorado Springs crash, the, the UA-585. It does feel like the tail deserves special treatment from an engineering perspective because it feels like it's being activated at low altitude when you've got the rudder and ailerons are being, I mean, is that a fair read? I'm not a pilot. Is that a, it does feel like it's, it's a high risk surface. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's why some people early on in the development, you know, they, they didn't, you know, one axiom is, um, you know, if you've got a hardware problem that you should have a hardware solution. And so when this, this pitch up tendency was noticed because of the bigger engines, you know, one thought was that they could put, um, what's called Vortilons on the, um, wings and that would, might change the performance. Um, but, um, the, the software, <laughs> the advantage of being quicker and, and, and cheaper. And so the, the software approach was, was used. Um, and in, in high speed, it was tied to two sensors. That was one point we didn't cover, but, but the, um, initially, uh, because it was acting only at 
high speeds, uh, it, it would have responded to, to both the AOA and, and this other sensor called the accelerometer. And then it was only later that it was added to this low speed regime. So the accelerometer just d- didn't factor into it because you're, you're at a low speed. Well, and it's it, you have these like small decisions that are accruing and people are losing track, clearly losing track of the larger picture and not realizing that the consequence, I mean, it seems like it was very consequential to start engaging this thing at low speed. Yeah. And, and again, you didn't, apparently you didn't have someone who, you didn't have a Joe Sutter figure who w- was keeping track of all these incremental changes and was noting uh, how, how these pieces fit into the whole, um, the, the manager of the program after the first flight test got a congratulatory call from from one of his managers and then and got some additional stock um so so it's possible that his mind was elsewhere well so yeah i'm glad you brought him up because i've got michael teal underlined here um Mm -hmm. the so michael teal was the chief engineer you Mm -hmm. point out that he has no direct reports or 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 the the organization doesn't report into them which seems like a, a funny way of doing it yeah yeah. Were, were, were you shocked that he seemed to know so little about how important the single AOA was? Yeah. And, and you, 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 you had that from him. You, you, you had that from his manager, who's a, a business unit um, VP. And you, you had that from the chief of safety at the FAA, just professing very little technical knowledge and, you know, very little awareness of what, technical changes were being made and and it it, it you know it, it just struck me that at every stage you, you know it, it, it there there was uh keith leverkuhn was the um manager who supervised teal and and he summarized the late change to mcas as being you know problem found you know solution available so that was the level of briefing and technical discussion that was going up the chain did you find that shocking? I mean, I guess one yeah, question I definitely I have for you is like, what you surely had some moments in the story where you just couldn't believe what you were seeing. Certainly, as a reader, I had moments where I couldn't believe what I was reading. Um, what were some of those moments for you? Uh, I, I was surprised by um, I, I was surprised by infidelity. Infidelities, we, you know, we discussed earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I was su- surprised. Um, I, you know, I was surprised that there isn't more, uh, that there wasn't more discussion, you, you know, uh, uh, you know, open discussion. And, um, and a- after the crash, I continue to be surprised that, um, Boeing's, you know, executives have continued to stonewall and, and, you know, haven't engaged in any kind of meaningful discussion and that there hasn't been any real house cleaning at the company that that's surprising to me. It, so that's surprising to me too. I am also, I have to say, surprised that I was going just to the Boeing website in preparation for this, and they're remarkably candid though about the seven thirty seven Max, mm-hmm. and they've got this kind of memoriam to the the, the, the Lion Air and Ethiopian Air. I mean, is, does that reflect a deeper cultural change in Boeing, or does that feel superficial to you? Um, I'd have to look specifically at what you're um, talking about there, but um, they. Um... I mean, if, if if you read the, there was an interview that um, Boeing's current commercial airplane chief, Stan Deal, um, gave to Dominic Gates at the Seattle Times. And um, there was 
not <laughs> any open reflection. It, it was, you know, declined to comment, but anything to do with the 737 MAX. So, yes, in situations Boeing controls, they, I think, w- control the message, but it, I haven't seen them engage in any meaningful dialogue about it since you know since since dave calhoun became ceo and what has their reaction been to the book they've not commented publicly on it um Uh, yeah because it's nor is the faa really you just feel like this is such an opportunity to i i I mean welcome the book first of all but also like we mean if if people are dedicated to changing Boeing and change the FAA. The book presents, I think, a, a great opportunity to have that discussion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a real, um, it, I mean, that I, maybe I would count myself. That's, uh, that's surprising to me as, as, as well, but that may be, you know, part of the public relations strategy. Yeah. Interesting. Simeon, sorry, you got your hand up. What did you have a question for Peter? Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned the FAA because it's sort of related. I, I remember at the time reading about the role of the FAA, the role of, uh, you know, the operators um, and the role of Boeing. Um, and, and, you know, it all seems quite puzzling. And then um, something that was mentioned at the time was the competitive pressure from the Airbus, what is it, A320neo um, as an alternative um, narrow-body uh, aircraft. And it got me to wondering to if and to what extent there was a sort of a Team USA uh, factor, especially considering the the FAA. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a really interesting point. And um, th- that may have played into it as well because there was this cultural shift at the FAA uh, where managers at the FAA felt that they part of their role was in speeding designs toward completion and in meeting, you know, quote, stakeholder needs. And that meant doing things on the manufacturer's schedules. So that, so that's what kinds of pressure the FAA engineers were experiencing when it came to um, Boeing models. Um, At the same time, I, I talked to, you know, some specialists who were noticed noting at the FAA that, you know, change changes that, uh, you know, the FAA would let Boeing, uh, not meet, you know, with the, with the max, not meet current regulations on some of the fuel tank designs, but it was insisting on, you know, circuit breaker surge protection and and things like that on the, the A320 Neo design. So I, I did wonder myself about whether the FAA was playing into this team America mentality. Which ultimately ended up very much harming Team America, and, and that was the. And it just like I think that just like the financial engineering. I mean, it ultimately this isn't just the wrong thing to do. It doesn't even serve the, the goal. It's like we ultimately we effectively the even if the regulator viewed their role as serving Boeing, they undermined Boeing by allowing them to by by not regulating them better. Is, is that a? I mean, is that a totally in the, in the in the long in the long run? Yeah, I mean, you you see how it plays out in the long run. And if, if you don't balance customers and employees, communities in the long run, that that hurts you. So, yeah, I mean, I guess what, what, what is the kind of the, the 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 lesson for for, you know, those folks that are you get, get a lot of folks that are technologists who are software engineers. What, what, what do you feel is kind of the some of the lessons that we can kind of apply to other organizations here? Yeah, it's a. Um, 
Well, I mean, we've covered some of them, but it's, you know, listening <laughs> to, you know, listening to employees, um, you know, re- valuing employees uh, views, um, you know, not structuring an organization so that it's top down to the point that um, bad news isn't filtering up. I mean, there, there were many moments that I described in the book where, where you had managers, you know, all but insisting that people not give them bad news. Um, right. And that is always harmful. Um, so it's, it's just being willing to engage in this open dialogue and to change your mind if, if you need to. And, and, it, you know, maybe it would have been in, inconvenient or not the plan to, to develop a new plane, but it, it would have been the better strategic decision. I, I'm glad you bring up bad news because I, I mean, this is certainly one of my rubric for, for technological leadership is how well do you deal with bad news when you're solving anything ambitious, there's going to be bad news and you've got to have an organization that encourages that bad news uh, as opposed to trying to, 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 to squelch it. Uh, and I think that because ultimately like whether you're receptive to the bad news or not, doesn't change the fact that it's bad news, uh, which part of the challenge here clearly exactly yeah yeah you know peter it, there's if there's a villain in the book and, and there actually are probably several it's this sort of jack welch and the disciples um you know shoveling all of the the value and virtue of boeing uh into this furnace of capitalism and one of the dark thoughts i sort of had as reading th- through it was just is this the kind of high entropy state of of all organizations, you know, because it seemed like Boeing's engineering kind of held together, but it was so easy to unravel, so hard to build, and then so easy to unravel. Yeah, um, that's that's really well said. I mean that that is um, you know that that is ultimately what what I took away from this experience of moving, you know, here to Seattle and, and finding this company that was so embedded in the fabric of the city and the history. And it's moved to Chicago with, within a few years of my being here. And, and now it's unrecognizable, um, from, from what it was. Um, so it, it didn't take long at all. Um, and it's not alone either. You know, there's not you could you could write the same story about lots of other American companies. And do you feel there's a path back for Boeing? I think you would need to change. I, I think you would need to to do what we were talking about, and and it would need to, um, in in you know, f- fully accept that f- fully fully you know change change the strategy and 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 accept that you, you know you need to return to what existed before but I'm, I'm not sure that that um that that's happening that's tough to internalize uh yeah. matt yeah i think we're, uh probably time for yeah. one more question for peter yeah Go ahead. so i've got um to what degree do you think the f-35 is involved in this because the story i had always heard for boeing buying out mcdonald douglas was that basically mcdonald lost the f-35 program their commercial program was basically in shambles um, and that Boeing thought it would add more credibility in terms of the government bidding on the F-35 contract. Um, needless to say, that didn't work out too well for them. But that McDonald was not so much purchased for its commercial division as much as it was for its non-commercial division. And obviously, there is some level of cultural difference between what you're looking for in a fighter jet and what you're looking for in a commercial airliner. 
Um, I don't know if you have any comments. Yeah, that. no, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, it, and it does show how you know a decision made for one reason can have these cascading effects. Um, and and certainly, you know, certainly I have been told that McDonnell Douglas wouldn't have been on the block and, and if it hadn't lost the F thirty five. So um, the you know again, I, I think you know, there were also moments in the book where um, the the military side of Boeing was was pushing. The leadership to do things, you know, for expedient reasons, for military contracts, you know, let's move the 747 production to to California to so help us helps us get military contracts. Um, so yeah, if 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 that did factor into the thinking, I, I think it's it's another example of of uh, expediency, you know, triumphing over just just the self confidence, you know, that that's Boeing became what it was in the jet age because of its self-confidence and it's it's you know the the belief that its products were were best well and, and, and you didn't know, need I, these I mean, these extras you you could also make the argument about i mean expediency is one way to put it but on the other hand if you think about the sorts of autopilots that are being engaged on these aircraft right modern jet fighters could not be flown by a human, right? Mm -hmm. They rely mm -hmm. entirely on their computers to not fall out of the sky. Yeah. Um, and so one could imagine that if you've just lost the F-35 program and you have a bunch of autopilot programmers lying around, at around the same time you were starting, um, I, I don't know if Boeing had that level of cross-pollination between the divisions or like... Not being a Boeing covering journalist, I don't really know how they operate. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've got say that same question because it seems to me that they are pretty different sides of the house. Is that is there any cross pollination between the military and the commercial side? Yeah, they, I mean they've they've tr they've tried to. Um, I mean the 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 hope of management is that you know while you you have these people doing essentially the same thing, we should you know we should be able to get synergy and cut costs and and you know you can merge you know the the flight tests and have military pilots you know doing what commercial pilots are doing and, and but often that ends up being counterproductive because the you, you do need to have a separate military flight test operation because those pilots know fighters best and and the commercial pilots know on a daily basis how anybody is actually flying the plane which a military test pilot doesn't know and and that you know, also played into the, the, the max because the flight test operation was led by a former military pilot who, who didn't have that kind of daily immersion in, in a, what a commercial pilot is doing. And yeah, just out of, out of curiosity, do you have any idea what the, the background and pedigree of that military pilot was just only asking, because basically I have heard that the B2 spirit has something that's almost exactly MCAS. Um, bearing in mind that it's a delta wing, so like they fall out of the sky if you don't computer them anyway. So, sorry, you, you broke up after B two Spirit. Um, just you know, I know you mentioned that you, there was a military pilot there. Was he transport? Was he test pilot, fighter, bomber? Oh, fi this is. I, I was talking about Craig Bombin, who who um, is, okay. is is still currently the the head of Boeing flight test but yeah his his experience is fighters primarily yeah and then i think we we got i know um a couple questions just if you got peter you got time for two more questions sure they, 
the, yeah, the the um, one question came in from, from from Gene Kim, who I don't know if he's here or not, but wanted to get your reaction to the, the CEO congressional testimony. Um, I mean, did you did you feel that there there were? I, I actually, you know, you, you made reference to the the committee report, uh, which I thought was actually very good. I, I got into it because of the book. Um, but did you feel that the committee were there questions that should have been asked that weren't? Or how did you find the the, the testimony there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the House committee, um, you know, really did dig into the, the, the issue and um, that I relied heavily. And as you can see from me in the footnotes, I relied heavily on that report. Um, but, I, you know, in the testimony, I guess the frustrating thing was that in all of these um, congressional hearings, you'll you'll have these grandstanding questions. And you had a great opening question from um, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, who asked Mullenberg, you know, when did you learn that the MCAS would not be in the flight manual? Because he had dissembled about that question on a, in a Fox uh, uh, business interview after the Lion Air crash and had led viewers to believe that MCAS was in the manual. And as, you know, Blumenthal well knew, you know, by at least February after the first crash, uh, it had been brought to his attention that uh, a, a pilot, you know, in the organization had raised concerns ab- about uh, changes to the MCAS and what had been told the FAA. So, so that would have been a great thread to continue following and continue asking, you know, who, who did you talk to? What were you told? You know, really, what, what did you know? And when did you know it? Um, especially in that period between the two crashes um, would, would be really important to know. Yeah, interesting. And I, I, you should know that uh, Adam is a as a, a son of the great state of Connecticut. Are you I'm waving a, your Connecticut flag? Right oh now? yeah, I'm a <laughs> nutmegger for sure. Although uh, Dick Blumenthal was not well loved uh, growing up, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I, th- that that questioning that you described uh, was terrific. And I would also say that it was the most positively I've felt about Ted Cruz ever in your description in the book. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I think I missed the the end of that. Oh. <laughs> Ted Cruz came off well in your book, oh, which right. was surprising to <laughs> yeah. me and, and yeah. disturbing to me. Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, he he put on his um his 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 tough lawyer hat and and he did he did put Mullenberg on the spot. Well, and I was actually relieved that there was a bipartisan agreement that the FAA has actually outsourced too much of this, and it sounds like they have made at least some. Re- they've wound back some of the regulatory changes, which. Uh, you know, when in a divided time, when parties agree on something, you know, it's got to be really acute. So then one of the questions, the last question for you, Peter, was the um, the original issue that the test pilot Ed Wilson ran into at kind of the outside of the flight envelope. That issue, how, how severe would that issue have? Would they not have been able to get certification um, had they not fixed that issue at all, if they if they'd done nothing, uh, if they'd not done anything for MCAS, would they have failed their certification? Uh, they, th- this has been described. You know, the, the, you know, it, it it was raised as a you know this is a certification issue. It it needs to be fixed. I I think you know people that I've talked to have said that you could have addressed it um, in a different way. You know by restricting the uh loading in the back of the plane and you could have maybe changed the flight envelope of the plane and and not and uh you know but that would have been a separate conversation um to 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 have that you know you you would have potentially not loaded 
you know, in certain in just passages into certain conditions. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating to think that you, you may not have even needed MCAS at all if, if a different approach had at been all. taken. Yeah. yeah, and certainly if they had done the what, what was clearly the approach that was preferred by at least some of your sources of actually taking the 777 approach and mm-hmm. really not. Uh, I do think it's funny that the 737 MAX had so much technical debt, they had no way of naming it. Because it would have been the 737, it should have been the 737-1000, right? But they right. <laughs> didn't want to call it the 1000. So it's like just the, it's, there, there's kind of a, a cruel irony there. Um, well, Peter, thank you very, very much for enduring the rough road that is Twitter Spaces. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, I, uh, I you know, I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know, great questions. And, you know, and thanks so much for reading the book so carefully. It, it was a it was a great book. I honestly, again, very well written. I, I, I mean, it was it was a it was a pacer. I feel like I, I I don't know that I've ripped through a book this quickly since Bad Blood. I, I mean, it was <laughs> it, it was a and it definitely had some bad blood overtones. But I actually feel that there's a lot more to learn here than there is from because I feel like there, there's a lot that feels familiar. And certainly, Adam, you must have felt that there's a lot of oh. familiar to you. If it, I mean, that's since hence the dark feelings about kind of corporations in general. And, and Peter, I would just say I, I I read this on a plane recently. I uh, did check in uh, that the aircraft I was on was an Airbus aircraft before I cracked the book, just because I felt like I was already nervous enough about that. Right. But, <laughs> but 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 congratulations on the book and the acclaim that it's getting. The, it's it's awesome and uh, and and well deserved acclaim. And absolutely, and I think this should be required reading for engineers of 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 all variety. I would like to see, of course, um, we in software engineering um, need to take responsibility for our roles in in this. So, should be mandatory reading. So, thank you very much for a terrific book. Thank you. Thank, thanks again. And um, yeah, I'm I'm happy to endure it. It was it wasn't an endure you know so much to endure after all. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for the great questions, and we'll uh, we'll see you next time. Right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.